Won't you join me now, please, in a word of prayer. Good and gracious God, we thank you for the beauty of your creation and of this day. We thank you for another opportunity to worship you again in spirit and in truth. In the words of John the Baptist, we now ask that we might decrease in order that you might increase. Speak to us today, Lord, clearly, that we may see and hear and listen and understand. Grant us wisdom in all things. Increase our faith, our hope, our trust in you and our love for ourselves and our neighbors. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> My sermon text for this morning is the Gospel lesson, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. My sermon title for this morning is A Lot of Power, A Lot of Say. A Lot of Power, A Lot of Say. <clears throat> of the five great discourses or teachings of Jesus, around which Matthew's gospel is structured and arranged, chapter 18 today is the fourth. Overall, chapter 18 concerns discipleship, and along with chapter 10, it is the second such discourse of Jesus to do so. These six verses, which are lifted out for us today, concern discipline among Jesus' followers. Interestingly enough, they are unique to Matthew's gospel, being found nowhere else on Jesus' lips in Mark, Luke, or John. I must confess right off the bat that I don't care too much for verses 15 through 17 and find them problematic. They strike me as oversimplistic and woefully inadequate as it concerns the vagaries of human nature. Allow me to elaborate, as no doubt you are thinking to yourself right now, please do. The context of these verses is clearly the church, but I invite you to apply their logic to other examples of human community as well. Your job, your family, any grouping of friends or colleagues. If another person sins against you, verse 15 opens up, go and point out the faults when the two of you are alone. If the person listens to you, you have regained that one. Okay, stop right there. How often do we do that? Seriously. How often do we approach an offending party with our critique or our hurt feelings? I would hazard an educated guess that perhaps 90% of the time, maybe more, we are apt to go to a third party and say, can you believe what so-and-so said? Can you believe what they did or how they treated me? We rarely, if ever, go to the person one-on-one, -on -one, privately with the matter. We more often engage in what's called triangulation, that is making a triangle by going to a third party, hoping perhaps that they are in a position to handle our situation for us, redressing it and perhaps getting justice for us, and maybe even putting that other person in their place. Now the question is, why do we do that? Why are we reluctant to take even the first step in this process that Jesus lays out? A reluctance which renders the rest of the steps null and void in this carefully laid out 
process. It could be simply that we are conflict-averse by nature. We simply don't like conflict at a personal level. However, I also think something different might be going on. I think the reason we don't go to the offending party is because we know the likely outcome. How many times have you ever approached someone privately in this first step? And they have responded almost instantly, you know what? You're right. I was wrong to do what I did or said. I'm sorry, and I will do my best not to ever do it again. Has that ever happened to you? The likelier outcome, I think we would all agree, is what are you talking about? I didn't say that or do that. I didn't come across that way. You misinterpreted me. And who are you to judge me? All of us as human beings are quick to justify ourselves when confronted, to become defensive, and is self-awareness truly anyone's strong suit? And so knowing the predictable outcome of step one, knowing that we will likely make an enemy and only make things worse, we fail to even try to take the first step. No need to worry, though. Step two in verse 16 rides to the rescue. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The only problem with that stage is that everybody has two or three friends they can take along to their side. Everyone on every side of a debate can say, look, I can present two or three folks who agree with me that I'm right and you're wrong. It is rare indeed to find someone whom no one supports. Even the craziest of folks always have a few advocates and supporters. Not to worry, though. The third and final step in verse 17 is an airtight resolution, particularly given our American ideals and democratic sentiments. Let's just let everybody have a say and vote. The member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church as a whole, and if the offender refuses to listen even to the whole church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I have yet in 23 years of ordained ministry to see many church votes on anything which aren't pretty close and oftentimes split right down the middle. Keep in mind that we live in a country where presidential elections are most often determined by a popular vote of 51% to 49%, maybe 52 to 48. We normally term elections a landslide when a candidate wins 55% to 45. That's considered a strong mandate. But there were still 45% of the people who voted the other way. So I guess my issues with these three steps and three verses here are that they seem designed to work well and effectively with someone who is so obviously in the wrong, say a pedophile or child molester, or perhaps an embezzler of money, for example, that everyone will simply unanimously rebuke them the entire way. Most human offenses, however, are far more subtle and nuanced and less clear and involve personal slights so as to produce, when you come right down to it, divided camps of people with widely divergent opinions and facts on each side of the matter. Jobs, families, social groups, churches, nations. I've seen it hundreds of times, and I'm pretty sure you have too. I wish 
situations where it's clear-cut and obvious, such as these verses seem designed to remedy. It is also somewhat of an ironic and fitting coda on such a scenario that it ends, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A phrase clearly meant to be insulting and leading to shunning, if not excommunication. And yet the very author of this text, Matthew, is a tax collector by profession who regularly includes practitioners of his trade as special examples of Jesus' affection. Remember the oft-cited charge against Jesus? He dines with sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. Surely you recall the tax collector Zacchaeus, who has an encounter with Jesus resulting in his repentance of fraud, accompanied by restoration, but not indicating his giving up the profession. The remaining three verses of our text this morning I find extremely powerful in an overall sense, if not a definitive resolution in this context. If we could take them somewhat out of order, verse 19, verse 20, and then verse 18. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Taken in this order, unity, as opposed to division, is what leads to power. It leads to power because the presence of Jesus exists in unity among His followers. That power that we then possess in unity is a power to then determine, change, and alter not only earthly matters, but also heavenly ones too. Whatever verdict we render on earth is apparently rendered up in heaven. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of say. If we decide to bind it here on earth, it is bound in heaven. And conversely, if we decide to loose it here on earth, it is loosed in heaven. And it is a very similar concept to in John's Gospel. Jesus is breathing on His disciples and saying to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of say. Jesus very easily could have said one of two other things. Number one, go read your Bible. Whatever the law of God says is bound or loosed, forgiven or retained, that's what it is, clear-cut, black and white, go read your Bible. Or, number two, I am the judge up in heaven, he could have said. I decide what's bound or loose. I decide what's forgiven or retained. He could have vested such power, such authority, and such say solely in himself or in Scripture. But he doesn't. In Matthew 16, here in Matthew 18, and again in John 20, he invests us his children, his followers, his believers, his disciples with that power and authority. He says, in effect, you make the call. If you bind it, heaven binds it. If you loose it, heaven looses it. If you forgive it, heaven forgives it. If you retain it, heaven retains it. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of say. Let that sink in for just a minute, my friends. God gave the Holy Spirit into the heart and soul of every believer in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is God. So God gave Himself into the heart and soul of every believer in Christ. 
When those believers in Christ come together in unity, when they, as some traditions term it, touch and agree, Jesus Himself is present. And Jesus has the power to do all things. So then we, operating through and manifesting His Spirit and power, now we have the opportunity to do all things. And whatever decision we make, whatever call we reach, is reflected in heaven. And so earthly realities become heavenly realities. That is a lot of power. That is a lot of say. We can, in effect, contribute to someone's binding or someone's liberation. We can determine to a large extent whether someone lives in retention of their sins and flaws or in forgiveness of them. A famous Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, once remarked, the world is equally balanced between good and evil. And your next act will tip the scale. Even though I have a theological issue with that quote, I love it nonetheless. I feel it encapsulates the power that God gives us through Jesus and the Holy Spirit and conveys the urgency of any given moment and heightens our call as Christians to regard every encounter as sacred and every moment as determinative. It may not necessarily adequately resolve every issue in our lives, jobs, family, church, and home, but a certain spirit will begin to be applied, begin to be consistent, begin to be planted and rooted, nurtured and grown, begin to transform lives of individuals and communities. There is absolutely nothing to prevent us from going around loosing rather than binding, forgiving rather than retaining. There is absolutely nothing to prevent us from going around loving our enemies and praying for our persecutors, blessing those who curse us and turning the other cheek to those who strike us, to so identify with others that when they rejoice, we rejoice. When they weep and are in pain, we weep and are in pain. We can go around all day, everywhere we turn, heeding God's call. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is possible, my friends. It is possible. Oh, if it could be said of each one of us as our epitaph, when we left this earth, everywhere they went, they loosed. Everywhere they went, they forgave. Every turn they took, grace and mercy and loving kindness spilled out all around them, forming a robe or an aura of Christ, which had a transforming effect on everyone in their path, everyone blessed to have been in their midst. That is a lot of power. That is a lot of say. If our next act will tip the scale, let's tip it towards justice. Let's tip it towards mercy. Let's tip it towards peace and reconciliation and compassion. Let's tip it towards freedom and restoration. Let's tip it towards forgiveness and holiness. Let's tip it towards fellowship and accompaniment. Let's tip it towards putting ourselves in someone else's shoes and asking how we can support them rather than judging them preemptively. Let's tip it towards faith, hope, and love. And by the way, what's the greatest of those three? Faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. It's not impossible. It's very possible. I can do it. You can do it. We can do it together. God can do all things by Himself, but He chooses not to. 
He chooses to operate through us and through our unity. He, for some inexplicable reason, allows us a say in heavenly determinations. Let it be said of us that we were Christ-like. Let it be said of us that we were like Christ. Novelist Ian McEwen wrote about the virtue of empathy. Imagining what it is like to be someone other than yourself is at the core of our humanity. It is the essence of compassion. It is the beginning of morality. Imagining what it is like to be someone else is at the core of humanity. It is the essence of compassion. It is the beginning of morality. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of say. In Jesus' name, amen.